Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. I'm with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And this is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week, we come in and we have an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to artists, musicians, uh, photographers, craftspeople, as well as people who help promote the arts in their community. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, graphic. We're going to be talking about visual arts, and we're going to be talking about a specific art of printmaking with our guest, Jacob Crook. Jacob, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So you are a you, this is your official title I'm reading, Assistant <laughs> Professor of Art and Printmaking Coordinator at Mississippi State University. That is correct. All right. So you're in Starkville. And to start off the hour, I also want to note that you are one of our new Artist Fellowship recipients at the Mississippi Arts Commission. We have a competitive Artist Fellowship grant, and you're one of our Visual Arts Fellowship recipients. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I am uh, beyond honored to receive that. So this is a grant that Jacob can use to, however he wants to, to um, help expand his work in whatever way. Do you have ideas yet, or are you still formulating that? Uh, I'm still formulating a bit. I do have a, a handful of things kicking around in the back of my brain. Um, possibly the introduction of some subtle use of color in my work. Um, maybe expanding into some other print processes or attending some workshops to kind of expand my my skill set within that area. Yeah, so this is a $4,250 uh, fellowship, and Jacob, as well as several other artists from around the state, have uh, just been awarded that in the, in the last couple of weeks. Um, but let's dig in. So you are a printmaker, and, uh, but you also do painting, you do pencil, other things as well? Painting, uh, drawing, print. Uh, I would say that primarily my work has been focused around printmaking and specifically mezzotint engraving for, shoot, probably the last eight years almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Well, let's kind of, so now you're, you're a college professor, you're, you're uh, guiding the way for the next generation of artists, but let's, let's you hearken told back. told me that 15 years ago, I just said, really? <laughs> well, it happens to us all eventually. Um, but let's, let's cast back to uh, young Jacob Crook when he first got started. When was your first kind of, um, when did you first develop an interest in visual art? Um, I think that predates my current stream of consciousness. Um, my mother always loves to tell this story about how when I was three years old, I apparently produced in what was in her opinion, some wildly detailed drawing of a dinosaur. And she looked at me and was like, what in the world is this? You're three years old. Like three year olds don't do that. Um, so I've, I've had a pencil in my hand since at least that date onward. Um, and knew from from an early age that regardless of what my career shaped up to be in any specific manner, it needed to have something to do with visual art. So were you uh, the class artist? Uh, were you taking Absolutely. art classes? T- tell us a little bit, kind of like your form, before you went to college, some of the things that you were involved in. 
Um, so I did when I was very young, I believe starting in, I guess I was in kindergarten. So six or seven years old, however, however, however old you are in kindergarten. Um, my siblings were more into sports and played on the soccer team and baseball and this and that. And my mother was always like, well, we have to find something for Jacob. And there was this great, uh, Friday afternoon or evening, like after school arts class at, um, at St. Peter's, Missouri. I can't remember the name of the art center, but I would go there and draw and paint and do scratch boards and clay sculptures. And it was basically just, here's all the materials you could possibly think that you would need and do whatever you want. And maybe not whatever you want. There was a little bit of a, some guidance here and there, but it was basically just kind of free reign to, to harness my creativity. So you got developed, got to exposed to a lot of different artistic processes early on, which I guess was really valuable. Right. Yeah. And a, lot, uh, a wide range of different types of materials rather than just at home with a stack of copy paper and a pencil, which I made enormous use of, uh, just dozens and dozens and dozens of drawings of, I think when at that age, it was mostly, um, fish and dinosaurs and sharks and other, other things that preoccupy the mind of a seven-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. Kind of moving into college, I guess you, you knew right away, I guess I'm going to do visual art. And so how did that, you know, your kind of specifically your undergraduate experience kind of open you up in terms of what might be possible for you? Uh, my undergraduate experience was pretty, pretty formative. Um, like you had suggested, I did always know that I wanted to do something visual art related. I wasn't exactly sure specifically what that meant. Um, so I did my two-year degree first. I had a scholarship through my high school to do a two-year degree anywhere in the state of Missouri for free tuition, which was incredible. Completed that, transferred into University of Missouri in Columbia, and was under the, under the idea that I was going to do graphic design. And got into the art program, kind of was then then beginning to understand what that actually looked like. And it was a lot of package design and uh, typefaces and things that are that we absolutely need people to make excellent creative decisions about. But that was ultimately not not what I felt my voice was supposed to be. So I, the way I always tell that story is like at one end of the hall, I saw them making these wine bottles that looked great, but it was all on the computer and not necessarily what I wanted to do. And then I kind of proverbially looked at the other end of the hallway and saw people making these giant filthy charcoal drawings and oil paintings and just covered in all sorts of art materials. And I was like, whatever that is, that's what I need to do. And from that point on, um, I declared an emphasis in painting and got my bachelor's of fine arts with an emphasis in painting. I think I technically was a couple credits away from being a triple emphasis in painting, drawing, and printmaking. But on my diploma, it still just says Bachelor of Fine Arts, Art. So, Something I heard a, um, an art professor, a professor of art talk to a potential student about is like, um, and maybe now that you're teaching, think about is like, they, um, you can do lots of things during your life, but when you go to when you're in art school, it's like teaching the way that you, the way that you work or teaching that, b developing your process. That, that is a really big part of what I teach. It is, yeah. a lot of it is about like learning to see and learning 
techniques, but uh, something that I do try to try to hammer on in in my courses is like how how to be an actively engaged creative individual. Like how how do you structure your day as an artist? How do you how do you ensure that you stay motivated and inspired and do do research in a in a meaningful way, which um, doesn't necessarily look like research in other academic areas. My research on any given day could mean listening to an interesting podcast and then scribbling for three hours and then sitting back and kind of analyzing what all these marks mean and how that's going to influence my next my next moves in whatever the image I may be making, rather than analyzing data or making charts of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and each week the Arts Commission comes to you, and we have these in-depth discussions with different creative Mississippians. Today we're talking with Jacob Crook. He's Assistant Professor of Art and Printmaking at Mississippi State in Starkville, and he is one of this year's uh, Arts Commission Artist Fellowship grant recipients. Um, so thinking about kind of one of the things I saw, uh, so you kind of came out of undergrad thinking you're a painter or you're a printmaker, did you have, were you kind of, had you decided at that point which way were you going to go? I honestly had not decided in any real meaningful way what what specific path I wanted to take. Um, I was very interested in oil painting, um, probably equally, or look, looking back now from, from my current position, um, equally or maybe secretly more so interested in printmaking. Um, I guess a little bit of that origin story. I had never made a print before in my life that I can recall before I was 22 years old. And um, my 3D design professor at the time, Christopher Danagelis, who is a printmaker and is now the the coordinator of the printmaking area at Mizzou, um, talked about printmaking the whole time through the 3D class. I became quickly fascinated and said, Chris, I'd I want to take your class next semester in printmaking, but I've never made a print. He said, oh, that's no no worries. That's great. That's fine here. And gave me some materials, made my first cr- print, and it was like a light bulb turned on. Like, this is endlessly fascinating to me. It gives me all sorts of control over this drawing that I don't necessarily have with other materials. I showed him some charcoal drawings I was making in a figure a figure drawing class, and then he quickly said, oh, we have to get you making a mezzotint. And I went, Chris, I've never heard this word before in my life, and I have no idea what that means. And he, I took a summer class with him where he focused on that for a bit. And it immediately, upon pulling my first print in that technique, became my absolute most favorite thing in the world. Awesome. Well, let's, we're, we're going to get to mezzotint in, in detail, but... Kind of in uh, your kind of grad school years, I noticed in your CV that you um, you did a lot of kind of assistant to printmaker kind of uh, maybe internships or and so I was curious about that kind of as a process as a printmaker being an assistant to someone kind of is it seems like it, is that kind of an apprenticeship or kind of mentoring type of deal or talk about that as as a learning kind of environment for you. Sure. Um, so that. Uh that is a large part of what goes on in traditional printmaking processes is um, a heavy, heavy degree of collaboration of sorts, which um, when looking at the finished printed product isn't necessarily 
um, immediately disclosed or super visible. But uh, what you were referring to on my CV is um, I was very fortunate at Syracuse University, the printmaking department there had a visiting artist program where we brought in, I think it was between one to five artists a year. And they were essentially an artist in residence for a week and showed up with as little as just an idea or showed up with a bunch of previously etched and engraved plates. And we started with very little. And then over the course of four or or five days would make an entire finished published edition with these artists. Many were working in wildly, wildly varying different types of processes. Some were very contemporary and a little bit more uh, digitized in ways. Other artists were making like 16th century etchings and engravings or woodcut prints. And um, all of the uh, printmaking majors and graduate students and faculty within the print area would work collaboratively all day, every day for five days with these artists. And we would get a great deal of insight into their, just how their, um, their research process looks like in their personal studios, as well as how they, um, just kind of like logistically lay out their workspace. Like what we got kind of got a behind the scenes peek into what their, their research and creative, um, creative inspirational type of process looks like in their, in their terms. And that's, that afforded me a great deal of um, kind of academic but not academic learning and told me a little bit more about what it, what it meant to be not just an artist but a printmaker making traditional printed imagery when um, contemporarily print people generally think of like command P and it comes out of a Xerox printer. Right. And kind of like uh, what's involved to become like, to become legit like this is this you get to see this person in real time exactly do this work exactly yeah. and yeah. there a lot of it was was like like hard physical labor like lifting heavy stones and printing things under tremendous pressure and working for 14 hours but then on the other side of that was it was kind of a casual social experience to like you're just hanging out and having a conversation with this artist and then kind of figuring out like what was what was their origin story? How did they, how did they become acquainted with printmaking? And what was what was their trajectory from point A to B and so on? And it gave me a little, a little bit better of an idea of how I could follow a similar path, but along my uh, my sort of interests. Yeah, excellent. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org. 
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and today our guest is Jacob Crook. He is Assistant Professor of Art and Printmaking at Mississippi State, and he's one of our 20, fiscal year 2024 Artist Fellowship recipients. Um, so we've been hinting a lot. We, you've been mentioning this mesotint process, uh, uh, kind of your primary process that you use in your artwork. Um, so tell us, tell us what that is. Okay, so this could be anywhere between a three-minute description or three-and-a-half-week-long description. Um, I'll try and keep this as relatively brief as possible. It's a... Um, 17th century engraving technique invented in 1642, which at the time of its inception was the only means of creating imagery in multiple that was not dependent on the use of uh, linear mark making to create gradations in value. So it was essentially the, the first means of printing um, continuous tonal gradations from jet black to middle grays to completely white. So they had like a type typeset or basic typesetting at that point, but so but this was kind of the yeah. first to get shades of different grades. Exactly, I, of, of, yeah. there were there were ways of getting uh, modulations in tone and approximations of gray, but all of it was um, by use of hatching, cross hatching, various weight and quality of line. Um, this process was though it can have uh, linear marks within the design in the image was not dependent on lines in order to create those values and it is a very specific process and i watched a video on it so i could understand what it was before i came and the 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 person doing this said this process is labor intensive and tedious but it is worth it <laughs> Maybe a vast understatement. Yep. It is um, unbelievably time-consuming and relentlessly tedious, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, so do you want to know a little bit more about the actual nuts and yeah, bolts so you, of Yeah, it? so you start with a, a, a copper, like a copper plate, right? Um, I, ideally copper. It yeah. has in the past been done on uh, soft steel or zinc, but uh, the malleability of copper is soft enough that it can uh, receive the marks fairly easily, but also strong enough that it'll withstand the pressure of printing. Um, so the whole premise of any etching or engraving technique is, uh, which includes mesotint, is to create um, various different pits or scratches or grooves in a piece of, in this case, copper um, that will hold ink in various different ways. Mesotint is kind of different from most of those techniques in that it is a almost entirely reductive drawing process, meaning you're starting with entirely jet black and then reducing those textures to create uh, gradations in value and eventually get back to white. So the preparation process, and this um, anyone listening, I would encourage you to Google this term and uh, see some see some pictures or some videos. There's a serrated blade called a mesotint rocker, which can have anywhere from 45 teeth per inch across the, the curve of this blade or up to 150 plus. And that is very, as you suggested, tediously and time-consumingly teeter-tottered back and forth over a piece of metal. And every one of those teeth on that blade 
punches a tiny little indentation into the into the copper and displaces a burr around it, which will hold ink both along that burr and in the indentation. That is done over... Uh, there, there isn't really a prescribed number of passes over the plate, just enough until it's no longer shiny and has uh, the appearance and texture of uh, an emery board, like a nail file. So you're rough, You're taking this smooth surface and roughing it up, but it's a really slow kind of... Very, yeah. very... But you've uh, got to be very... It's got to be very thorough, right? So Very have, thorough, yeah. very precisely ruined piece of copper that then is redeemed by virtue of... Um, scraping and burnishing an image out of it and that's that's the drawing process is um using different tools to either shave away at that resulting um kind of roughened sandpapery type texture by either cutting away at the burrs or um flattening them using a burnisher to smash them back into the surface um so basically the whole premise is the rougher the area, the darker it'll print, and the progressively smoother, smoother the the texture on the plate, the less and less ink it will hold when when ink is wiped into the surface. And so the process is, I mean, this is like, from what I remember you talking in this other interview, most of the people who work in this process work fair, relatively small compared to like a painter because of this amount of work that you have to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Historically, um, what's considered a, a large image in mezzotint or many other printmaking processes is a comparatively much smaller in relation to what constitutes a, a large oil painting. Like when we think large oil painting, you're thinking, I don't know, eight, 10 feet. Like that's a, that's a pretty physically commanding surface. A large mezzotint uh, contemporarily is mm, a foot and a half, two feet maybe. Yeah. And this is something that just the prep process is hours and hours and hours and hours. And then you're... Dozens and dozens and yeah. dozens of hours. And so the, the, the prep thing seems like you could kind of be listening to podcasts you could be doing lots you know maybe kind of have you been petting, peeking in my studio window pe petting the dog or something <laughs> you know you're rough on the surface but you're just kind of it's a little more mindless maybe than... it's it's both um it's kind of entirely mindless and also like very meditative at the same time okay. like there's a, a certain kind of rhythm that you have to be in tune mm -hmm. with and um kind of being being conscious of how how quickly or how slowly that tool is passing over the surface that you're preparing. And uh, I kind of oscillate between just mindless zoning out, completely and totally meditative in the zone, and absolutely infuriated that I'm still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind and of a, a wave of emotions. By contrast, the actual kind of etching part seems... I mean, there's a lot of... The, the, the prints have a lot of detail, and there's a lot... And it's... Because it's small, you're working in a small space, so that seems like a lot of intense uh, focus. It's incredibly focused. I've um, I don't always do a great job of keeping a, a timesheet on how much I spend on a any given image, but for there have been a couple where I've kept a timesheet and figured out, okay, I spent 150 hours on this engraving, and it's we'll say 12 by 18 inches. Did the math and found out, oh, I spent an hour and a half per square inch on this thing 
I don't think that's the actual correct math, but um, yeah. but yeah, it requires a great great deal of focus and patience, which ironically enough, I don't I don't find myself to be the most patient person. So this is kind of a a process of grounding myself and keeping keeping myself centered. Mm-hmm. Um, the it's part of, part of the reason for it being such a time consuming and slow moving drawing process is by virtue of how you're. Uh, physically sculpting the surface of that plate corrections can be made but if for example i make an area of the image too light i have to retexture and like re mm, reprocess the whole or you can do it in like select areas yeah. but essentially you have to start that area over wow which can be maddening at times <laughs> <laughs> and and then once the actual, you finally got, you're satisfied with the etching you've done, then there's the printmaking process after that, right? And that's right, its own right. process, yeah, of inking and yeah, laying and paper. And, yeah, you know. there's, and there's a whole, it's not just a kind of a blue collar, like, okay, rub ink into this, send it through the press. There's, I've, I kind of treat the actual inking and printing of the plate um, how a, a painter might treat like the, uh, the glazing of an oil painting and kind of softening and smoothing shadows. And I'll, I'll exaggerate things in the, in the etching and engraving of the plate, anticipating that I will treat them differently through the inking and printing process. And that's, that's kind of what I think makes, makes this such a unique and, and special, um, process historically. A whole other layer of manipulation. After Absolutely. That. Yeah, that's great. Um, Let's uh, let's talk a little about your uh, so the actual subject matter. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at your. Um, it's a lot of landscape. It's a lot of um, empty, like spaces without people, I guess. And and some of them, I, one especially, I don't know if it's a series or just an ongoing thing. Is kind of like nightscape, like street scenes at night with with street lights, kind of being the the thing that's casting the shadows and that. Where does that, where does that come out of? What's your origins of that? So I'm trying to think. There, there wasn't really any, um, any one specific point in time that I can recall where I decided, like, okay, going to make very gloomily dreary lit street scenes. Um, ironically, when I first started making mezzotints, I saw the the range of values possible in them as something that I felt obligated to uh, to harness and use in the work. And so much of the early mezzotints were very or relatively brightly lighted daylight scenes, which kind of goes against the whole, like mezzotints are historically just very dark images. And I don't know why I felt compelled to just scrape and burnish away all that work that I did when ultimately the that rich velvety black in the images is what drew me to them to begin with. Um, I think what, what initially kind of made the transition into the, the nighttime scenes was, um, there's a number of artists that inspire me. Uh, Frederick Mershimer is a big, big inspiration. Um, also works almost exclusively in mezzotint. Um, Craig McPherson was another one. Um, I also just really love uh, Italian Baroque painting like Caravaggio and Artemisia Gentileschi. Um, it was just very drawn to that like deeply moody, dark, weighty type of imagery. Um, and I think what I'm trying to think what actually kind of led me down this path. Um, 
I guess I'll talk a little bit about like where I get the images from. I I typically go on a long walk every night, about somewhere between three and four miles, just to kind of clear my head and center myself. Very very much like the the process of making these prints. So I'm even when I'm taking time away from the studio, I'm still in the studio, like in my in my mind in a way. So you're looking these, for material, kind exactly. Of, yeah. It's it's uh, yeah, an artist's research is never you're never not researching. Um, so I'll, even though I'm just kind of out on a casual walk, I'm always kind of looking around for like, well, Hey, that, that light went out that, that used to be on for the last three weeks. Uh, and it, now the shadows are cast in a completely different direction that are very visually compelling to me. And I just take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photographs and then edit them down to what ends up being just a couple useful ones and, uh, composite those into different images. And then that's... That's where I generate the the subject matter from. The starting point. Excellent. Very good. And what is it about that specific process that just? Be, I mean, what are what are its? What's so intriguing and powerful to you to make you go through all that tediousness? <laughs> I mean, you could easily be a screen printer or you know some other process that <laughs> is like like you know comparatively there lightning are, fast. Yeah, there know? are countless different options to do this. Uh, way way faster and less laboriously um ultimately i think for me it's um as much as like i love the process and don't mind spending the time that's that's not at the forefront of it it's it's something about just um how do i want to phrase this i think it was uh one of the artists i just mentioned craig mcpherson uh likened the process of uh preparing the plate and then scraping and burnishing it he said that the the rocking and preparation of that of that roughened surface is like embedding the plate with energy, and then the scraping and polishing and burnishing of the light sources is releasing that energy back out into the world. And when I first read that statement, it just gave me a little bit of a shiver, and it's stuck with me ever since. And I've I don't know that I had those exact words for it when I started making mesotints, but it it put into pretty pretty good terms exactly what I felt when I make those images. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour for our final segment. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Jacob Crook. He's Assistant Professor of Art and Printmaking, Coordinator at Mississippi State in Starkville. And he is one of this year's uh, Arts Commission Artist Fellowship grant recipients. So uh, congratulations on that again. Um, Let's... um, 
one of the so looking at um, looking at your work online and the different series you have, you have kind of the 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 nightscape scenes that we were talking about previously. But there's another series of what I would call like the the decaying suburban mall, I guess, would be kind of, I don't know what you call it, but that's when I, when I saw it, I said, boy, that's a familiar space right there. Uh, I just call it the dead mall. Okay. Um, and uh, I guess a note on working in series, I don't, I don't typically kind of start off with, okay, I'm going to change from this direction I've been following and now explore this series and then complete that and move on to a new thing. I tend to more just kind of work in, I guess, kind of related to the subject matter, just kind of like sprawling time and space of work and then step back from it and kind of assess and go, okay, these five are kind of related. These three are kind of their own thing. The um, the Dead Mall series, though, I as soon as I started that, I'm like, this is absolutely its own thing. I'm I'm going to make as many of these as I can. Um, my sister-in-law at the time, she, she actually grew up going to that mall as a kid. It was the Metro North mall in Kansas city, Missouri. Um, and we, there was a, I'm forgetting the name of the photographer. He visited it after it had become abandoned and flooded and this and that, and said that it was the creepiest mall he's ever been in. And my sister-in-law was like, so do you want to go do some low key trespassing? And I was like, yes, please. Uh, so we went and shot, I think I took 400 some odd photos in there in a span of two hours and whittled it down to it's tentatively finished at seven images, but I don't know if I'm actually finished. Um, but that's it. As much as it seemed kind of like a departure from the, the suburban uh, sprawl landscapes and kind of dreary uh, nocturne landscapes and whatnot, the more I worked on on those images and did research into like the first malls and how they became and why they were built, it really is just kind of a kind of a little tributary off of off of the the more suburban landscapes like. Ideally, the mall, in some sense, is kind of downtown USA, but put under a roof at a perfect 72 degrees year-round, and even uh, non-invasive lighting. And it just seems like this kind of contrived space of sorts trying to do something that we already had and we moved away from. So this space is an abandoned mall where things are kind of disheveled and and there's no it's what probably just natural light that that was coming in and yep. and so you get the gorgeous blacks for the mesotel right? rich blacks. lots of blacks um but what was you know once you started working on it what became what i mean i can I, when you talk about it, it's like oh yeah it really does connect with all these other things you've been working on but talk about kind of the the, the allure of it after you kind of got back and started really maybe made a piece or two from that um, so the, um, ultimately like it's the, I would say the, the under underlying theme of all my work is light. And, um, as much as this was like subject matter wise, kind of a, at, at first glance, a big departure from the landscapes and sprawl and this and that it had the language of the light that I was interested in. Like it was very, um, very stage like, very kind of like planned and plotted and felt felt very intentional like it was a, a blank blank stage for 
some activity either that just happened or is getting ready to happen. And that's, that's part of the reason why the, why they're intentionally non people spaces is so that you're not focused on the activity that that figure is carrying out. It's more about, um, kind of functioning like a, like an establishing scene in a movie, like, okay, here's, here's where we are. We just transitioned from previous scene to here. We don't know what's going to happen yet, but it has, it has the ambience and mood of something foreboding or something uplifting or whatever the case may be. And I was very interested in the kind of like intentionally vague narrative possibilities of, of that space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense thinking about it as like, yeah, like it's the, uh, yeah, like the, the opening scene and then the char- before the characters walk in kind right, of thing. Right, right. You see this expanse or something. Yeah. yeah, except like, are the characters going to walk in or did they just leave? And also, why is this place so destroyed? <laughs> is anyone left? <laughs> um, well, that's awesome. So... You are, uh, right now we're speaking uh, in summer break, so you are being a full-time artist again, but you'll soon be taking the best and brightest of Mississippi's youth and teaching them all that you know. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about kind of, you're, you're uh, a couple, a few years in as a full-time professor, right? You've, mm-hmm. you've worked as adjunct in the past, previously right, right. in that. How does, um, how does teaching kind of, you know, and going back to fundamentals and, you know, we're kind of rehashing the, you know, teaching these kids for the first time, the fundamentals that you've done over and over. How does that, you know, how have you seen that inform your work? That's an excellent question. Um, one of the, one of the things that I love about teaching, um, as much as I just love seeing their eyes light up when they pull their first print off the press and they're like, Oh, I get it now. I'm like, I remember that moment when I had that moment. Um, one of the other things that I love about teaching is that it, it forces me to kind of um, remain as curious as they are, like makes kind of forces me to continually revisit being a beginner as much as uh, for better or worse, like after a decade and a half of working in a technique, you're just kind of not a beginner anymore. It makes you like listening to their questions that they have. I'm like, oh, I had never really heard it phrased that way. The the way that you just presented that is going to dictate a different answer for me and will encourage me to think about what I do and why in a, in a new and kind of refreshing way. That's awesome. We're talking with Jacob Crook today. He is assistant professor of art and printmaking coordinator for Mississippi state university in Starkville. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm also curious about, you know, you're working in this older, there's a lot of older, you know, the, the interesting thing about the art department is there's just all this very physical things there, you know, so much of uh, educational spaces now is, is it kind of like what we're a bunch of computers in a room. <laughs> so you actually see, you know, there's actually the potter's wheel, the, 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 yeah, the, the, the kiln, wheel, the, the kilns, forges, printmaking the, presses, the presses yeah, that kind of stuff. I'm just curious about, you know, younger people coming in and what, what kinds of things, what kind of processes are they, I'm just in general is, are you seeing like, uh, I'm just wondering about, you know, so much digital, I want to do something with my hands kind of things, reactions or, or, you know, things that, that the, 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 the processes that seem to be really grabbing your students these days. Um, yeah, that, that happens a lot. They're all, uh, again, for better or worse, they are all 
vastly better digital artist than me. Um, and as much as digital technology is a great tool and I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think focusing on it too much can kind of, uh, encourage us to forget how we got from older processes to these more streamlined digital technologies. And it's, I, I feel somewhat of a, a responsibility to preserve that history and make, make people aware of how this dissemination of images in multiple to a mass audience, like that all happened starting on the printing press. Um, and some of some of them are like, oh, this would be so much faster and so much cleaner looking if I did it digitally. And yeah, sure, but um, it might have a little bit more charm if you carve it out of a piece of wood and then rub ink on it and put it through this 1,500-pound piece of steel. <laughs> yeah, it seems like so much more of your personality can come out when you're like physically... Um, you know, we mentioned Sean Star Wars, like he is like, he's so great. He's, he's just chopping away at a piece of wood basically. And just punching wood with knives. Yeah. Just like <laughs> energetically. So, um, the personality can't help but come out right through, right, through these right. processes. Yeah. Speaking of Sean, we, uh, we brought him to, to campus as a visiting artist, uh, at the start of this year, uh, through the printmaking department and students absolutely loved his work. Um, it's, you've talked with Sean before. It's yeah. very, it's very bright, very loud, very energetic, very fun work. And the students responded immaculately to it. Yeah. And he can just crank out tons of it quickly. And he's, he's so energetic too. That's the, you yeah. know, he has so I, much kind of, uh, just, he's just, he's just loving yeah. his, his, his work so very much shows his personality. And I, I gotta say, I'm a little bit envious of his, uh, how how productive he is and prolific he is yeah making a, a woodcut a day for an entire year i'm like i can maybe make four prints a year and that's if i work really hard well yeah everybody's got their own way to get there um <laughs> so what um in terms of mississippi state i mean i've i've always been impressed by the program it, you know it's a full-time program you've got a lot of people teaching up there um kind of maybe for people that aren't as aware of kind of that visual arts scene in Starkville, what are some signposts during the year maybe if, if somebody was going up there for a game or some other reason, you know, uh, the times when you have your, your shows or, you know, times to see visual arts in, in Starkville? Absolutely. Um, so I guess during, um, during football game season, um, that's obviously when most people are in Starkville. Definitely the Cotton District Arts Festival. Absolutely come check that out. I forget the exact dates. It's in September this year, but it's uh, an entire Saturday. There's a juried exhibition that's always hosted at the Visual Arts Center, which is one of the galleries through the Mississippi State Department of Art. Um, and my studio is in a space above that gallery. Um, and there's vendors and food and drinks and music and actors. And it's, it's just an amazing, amazing experience. Um, other things to check out, uh, the Arts Council, Starkville Area Arts Council downtown in Starkville has a rotating set of exhibits up all, all year, uh, varying between a, a week long or as long as two months. Um, I just recently had a, a solo exhibition there uh, during this summer. Um, 
also just uh, exhibitions within the art department. Every every fall semester, there's the um, graduating senior photography exhibit that may be moving to the spring. I can't recall. And then every spring, there's the graphic design uh, graduating senior exhibition. And the final exhibition of the year is always the uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts exhibition. It's all of our... Um, various emphasis areas within the department, ceramics, drawing, printmaking, sculpture, painting. Um, all of those students have their their thesis work. So they work for a, a full year on a project of like researching, developing imagery and creating a body of work that they put on display. And that's that's always one of my favorite shows to go see throughout the year. Excellent. Excellent. And in terms of what kind of things do you have coming up, whether just projects that you're working on or exhibitions or or things that you anticipate that you that you've got on a to-do list oh my to-do list never ends um i've got uh on ongoing series of the the dimly lit nocturne scenes of of, um kind of overlooked areas around town in starkville I have for a year-ish now been working on a particularly noteworthy landmark within Starkville that I'm going to keep a little bit secret, though some people listening to this will probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, That'll be the biggest print that I've made since arriving at Mississippi State, holy moly, almost seven years ago. Um, Aside from that, that's happening actively in my studio at the moment i um i will be featured in the boston printmakers north american print biennial um this mm, i forget the exact dates it opens earlier mid-october but that's part of the uh, boston printmakers association it's a biannual exhibit that's a incredibly incredibly competitive juried show that i've been very fortunate to be juried into twice Oh, congratulations. And if people uh, want to check your work out online, where should we send them? Um, you can find my work at www.crookstudio.net. That's all one word, all lowercase. And uh, I try to make somewhat regular updates on my studio practice on my Instagram, and that's just at jmcrook. Excellent. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.